0: Hello and welcome to Strong Habits, the feminist fitness podcast about all things training, nutrition and mindset. I'm your host, Penny Varveridis, and this is episode 60. Gosh, we are in the final stretch now in the run-up to Christmas and everyone is split between not wanting to kill their parents and not wanting to be alone. It's a weird one. Everyone seems to be feeling pretty pretty tired, especially this week. And if that's you, don't be too hard on yourself. We are living through the longest shared trauma of our generation, and we're expected to carry on like everything is normal. So it's okay for your brain to be a bit tired. Be nice to yourself. Hopefully you can take a break over Christmas, even if that break mostly involves you still being alone in your house. I mean, 2020 vibes, right? I have a special episode for you this week. I spoke to flexibility researcher Dan Van Zandt about all things flexibility. We talk about strength training and flexibility, how they work together, about sport, about meditation and mindfulness and how that can impact your flexibility, about injury prevention and about hypermobility. Prepare to do some interesting learning. Without further ado, here's Dan. Hello, Dan. Welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to join in. I always enjoy talking about stretching and flexibility, so uh, yes, yeah, this is going to be great.
0: Start with you just introducing yourself and your research to the listeners.
1: Yeah, of course. So uh, my name is Dan Van Zandt. Um I've been a professional flexibility coach for over 20 years now. Um, I started getting into flexibility through martial arts um I, i've trained in like karate taekwondo kickboxing since i was a, a little kid um i always had instructors who were very science focused um they had like bachelor's and master's degrees in different disciplines um and yeah started kind of coaching the subject professionally about 1998 um and in the last kind of five to ten years um taking more of an ed- of an education approach rather than coaching people exercises now teaching people the science behind it um i've taught it um professional dance companies, um, Berlin state ballet, Paris opera ballet, um, different physiotherapy clinics, um, different universities, uh, Zurich, uh, university of Zurich university college, London. Um, my background is in kinesiology, which is a lot of people won't know what that is in the UK, but it's basically the study of human movement, um, with a specialism in biomechanics, which is the, how we investigate how forces act on the body. So that's kind of my background. Um, and i apply that to flexibility which everybody understands what flexibility is but there's so much contradiction when it comes to what science is actually saying and what the industry is saying or doing that my mission for the last few years now has been to kind of bridge that gap by sharing what the research says but in a way that people can understand and actually apply it as well Um, and so that's kind of the the whole mission behind my my online platform, which is Flexibility Research, um, is to tell people the research behind flexibility. Um, I, I'm also involved in research myself, so I'm a peer reviewer. So, whenever a research team writes does a study and then writes up the paper, they send that paper to people like me, who then review it for quality um, and make sure there's no risk of bias, that they're not inflating the claims, and then we submit it to the editorial team who will then publish it in a scientific journal but yeah that's that's kind of you know 20 odd years in a nutshell
0: (laughs) that's very cool thanks very much yeah no problem. I love that you came from a martial arts background so did I Mm. I started taekwondo on Mm. my 10th birthday actually wow and did that until I went to university I tried to do both at the same time but Mm. it was actually too hard it was too hard to do both because university there were just so many fun things to do that involved all <laughs> the <one quarter> time.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> um. So from, from a martial arts point of view, flexibility makes so much sense, mm-hmm. especially if you're short, like I'm really short. Mm-hmm. I found that being able to get my leg high enough to kick someone in the face meant mm-hmm. that I never had to get too close and I could yeah. get in and out and then not get punched in the face too much. Yeah. Just
1: getting punched in the face isn't that much fun, <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: How, how important is flexibility to athletic performance?
1: It's absolutely fundamental, um, not just to athletic performance, but to everything. Um, whether that's, whether we want to do martial arts or we want to get a great squat, we want to improve our 10K run time or we want to learn to dance because we have to think about what flexibility is. It's range of motion. So those terms, flexibility and range of motion are, are used interchangeably Throughout the literature, there's the scientific literature, so all the, the collection of all the, the scientific studies. And it's been that way for, you know, more than 100 years. And range of motion just means how far your joints can move. Um, that's exactly what it means in from the physics perspective. It's range is how much and motion means to change position. So a lot of people think flexibility is the ability to, to be bendy, but it's not. It's the ability to, to change the position of your joints. So flexibility is fundamentally your ability to move. And all movements that we do, whether we're squatting, running, kicking, or dancing, occur within range of motion. So you can only move within the the flexibility that you possess. So if you don't have the flexibility you need, then your movement quality is going to suffer. You won't be able to squat as deep. You won't be, you know, your running efficiency will decrease. You can't perform the dance movements that you want to perform. And you can predispose yourself to an overuse injury or an acute strain because your tissues are, are straining to get into those positions that they can't get into. Uh, we see, we will see a lot of compensations occur and then parts of the body will be doing jobs that they're not designed to do. And it, it, you, your movement just doesn't look good, right? Especially if you're doing something like dance or martial arts where you do um, in Taekwondo, they're called patterns, karate, they're called kata. So it's like the the kind of traditional shadow boxing your technique will just look awful so it's fundamental both for performance and for aesthetics um but yeah this is there's this idea that flexibility is just you know how far we can stretch but it's it's how much your body can move and it's it's uh joint specific so you could have great flexibility in your left hip in a certain direction but that doesn't mean you're going to have it in your right hip and same for hips and shoulders as well so it's uh yeah, it's, it's absolutely fundamental um, because if you can't put your joints where you need to put them, then you're not going to be able to do the things that you want to do at the end of the day. And when you try to force your body to do things that you that you want to do that it can't, can't get into those positions, then you're asking for trouble, basically.
0: Where do you think the difference in vocabulary came from? Because mm. I have always thought of flexibility as being how far you can move and bend Mm -hmm. into different positions and mobility being more a definition Mm -hmm. of how well you can move in those end ranges and Mm -hmm. flexibility being beyond what your mobility is Mm because you can always push deeper into a stretch than you can push back out of
1: yeah this is what I was talking about before the big disconnect between what science says and what the industry is saying or doing and and we have to understand there is different vocabulary Um, But in the scientific literature, it's very consistent. And funnily enough, and I always say we have to look at the scientific literature as our guide for the vocabulary we use, because we should try to be science-based, especially when it comes to the body. Because if we're led by science, then there's less chance for kind of myths and, and, you know, misunderstandings to take place. And when we look in the scientific literature, mobility doesn't mean active range of motion. It means the ability to navigate your whole body through space. That's why people who can't walk properly are said to have poor mobility and why things like wheelchairs and walking sticks are called mobility aids that's where that comes from it was actually a misunderstanding in the biomechanics literature between something called degrees of freedom which is the directions that your joints can move in which the the sum of the directions your joint not how far they can move which is range of motion but the the number of directions available to a joint was called degrees of freedom and the sum of those degrees of freedom was called mobility So it was the number of directions your your body could move. in. that's what mobility meant. But that was then brought over into the industry, um, particularly with uh, and I'm not blaming Americans here. I love America, but particularly American physical therapists and chiropractors use the word mobility, specifically joint mobility to apply to movement at joints. But even then, you know, we look at what joint mobility means in the scientific literature, and it doesn't mean the, the, the voluntary physical movements we have, it means the, the internal movements within the joint, which we have no control over. So even then it's a passive quality, but this idea that flexibility is passive range of motion and ac- mobility is active range of motion is actually a very recent phenomenon. It's only about 10 or so years old. Um, it started with the CrossFit phase, uh, with, uh, becoming a supple leopard, um, Kelly Starrer used the word term mobility, um, even though he was using traditional stretching techniques. And then we have systems like uh, functional range systems who at the moment are, are the real, the guys who are really pushing that mobility versus flexibility thing, but it's a complete fabrication. I understand why they're doing it. They're trying to make the terminology easier to understand, but it's easy to understand if you explain it uh, in, a, you know, in a simple way, because there, it's it, flexibility isn't active or passive. There's actually four types of flexibility. Right. Because all that active and passive tells you is whether the muscles are contracting or not. That's what active and passive means throughout all of the you know, medical, biomechanical um, strength and conditioning literature. Active and passive means to contract your muscles or to relax them. So it doesn't tell us whether those joints are moving. And for that, we use static and passive. Uh, sorry, static and dynamic. Right. So your body can. say So we take a joint. We'll take the hip. The hip joint can can move or it can't move. So it's either static or dynamic. And the muscles at the hip can either contract or relax so they're either active and passive but those two states the state of moving or not moving and the state of contracting or relaxing they both occur at the same time so you'll either be static or dynamic and it will either be active or passive which we put them together gives us four types of range of motion or four types of flexibility dynamic active which is when you move under your own control dynamic passive which is when you move under somebody else's control such as a physical therapist moving a joint for you when they're doing a, a joint range assessment. You've got static active, which is where you are stationary, but you're contracting the muscles. So just holding your leg up in the air as, as you do in a, in a Taekwondo pattern, you, you know, you do a high psychic and then hold it in position because it looks really good. And then you've got static passive, which everybody knows is you just sat in the splits, not doing anything. So there's actually four types of range of motion, not, not just two as comes with that paradigm of, of mobility and flexibility, and that's one of the issues that we have is, you know, people are making up these these definitions with good intentions, but they're actually doing more harm than good, because what we see is people will attend these training courses and they'll they'll go onto social media, and try to communicate something, from this course, a snapshot of this this training course, without any of the nuance that came with the the two or three days they were there doing the training, and then people will suddenly start thinking, oh, the the official definition flexibility is that that it's just passive right and that it's useless well it's it's not it's it's, there's there's a lot more to it than than just static and then just just, you know passive and active and um, that has implications for what we do in training as well because flexibility is speed specific and if we're not accounting for the dynamic versus static nature then we can't train velocity velocity is the speed right which is hugely important when it comes to performance and injury reduction so that leaves a huge part of the puzzle off the table, and so this is kind of why you know my mission more now has been to to bring translate the science into you know terms that people understand. Um, but again, this this model of four types of flexibility is consistent. It's been around for for decades. Um, it's just you know people aren't aware of it at the end of the day.
0: I wonder how much of that definition difference was a case of trying to make flexibility sound like something people who did sport should be interested in Hmm.
1: um potentially um the thing is like you know people are are doing flexibility training whether they think about it or not or whether they're aware that they're doing it or not right because everything we do with our bodies will do one of three things it'll maintain range of motion it'll increase range of motion or it will decrease range of motion that's the 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 literal definition of flexibility training to influence range of motion. Right. Um, but yeah, I think the reason why people came up with this idea of of mobility being active range of motion or, you know, active range of motion training is because a lot of people were just focusing on the passive aspects, you know, just, you know, stretching out and not doing anything about it. And they weren't able to perform as well as they should be able to, or there were the higher rates of injuries. And so, you know, focusing on the active aspects, which were often neglected. Um, was I think part of the reason why these these kind of you know definitions came about. Um, because the active aspect is is neglected in a lot of you know traditional systems, unfortunately.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Without the active part, then you don't really get to be any stronger in all of the range that yeah. you're creating. Yeah. Let's talk about running for a second. Okay. So with With runners, they often have really tight ankles and really Mm. tight hamstrings. Most runners I know can't touch their toes Mm -hmm. without specifically spending time Mm. trying. Yeah. Is it going to be helpful for runners to improve their flexibility through these areas? Or Mm. is it actually a protective force that your body has done on purpose so that you're strong enough to run?
1: Yeah. Well, the scientific answer, and it sounds like a bit of a get-out, is it depends, right? And it depends on on, on two things. Uh, number one, you know, the type of flexibility we're talking about, and number two, whether any limitations in range of motion are affecting how that person runs, because like you say, it may be an adaptive response where the body has decided that taking away range of motion in a certain area is beneficial for that person's activity that they're trying to do. So if they, if they lack dynamic flexibility, you know, to move through their full stride length, then maybe doing dynamic stretches prior to the run can help. And if reducing muscle stiffness can help reduce the metabolic cost of running and therefore make them a more efficient runner, then, you know, doing static stretches at the end of the workout may also may also help. Um, but it depends if they need that or not. And the only way to try that is, you know, through trial and error unfortunately and a lot of a lot of people don't like to hear that right um, because as, as coaches we're professional guessers, right we don't have all the answers all we can do is ask someone to do something and then get feedback from them on how their body responded to what we asked it to do and then kind of make changes as we go along i mean the, the research on this subject has been like a pendulum going from we should do static stretching uh immediately prior to running uh to improve muscle compliance kind of like in the second half of the 20th century and then the late '90s and uh, early 2000s research showed that static stretching during a warm-up can reduce performance. Um, There's something to understand is that those performance reductions are only around five percent, um, which, if you're a recreational runner, isn't going to impact you at all. It maybe only makes a difference at the elite levels, like Olympic and and World Championship levels. But m- more recent research has shown that when we when we do static stretching in a warm-up followed by dynamic stretching. Then it can increase running efficiency. So again, my advice to people is simply try it, right? Try doing static stretches and dynamic stretches at the start of the, the run and then do a run without them and see how your, your performance is affected. So do you run faster? Do you get more time? And you know, how does it make you feel as well? Do you feel good or bad afterwards? Um, people kind of want these really um defined objective uh measures for for. What, so what an intervention should produce. so you know if you do static stretching, it, it should feel exactly like this and, and produce but it's not the body doesn't respond that way, right The body is basically just this 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 bag of, of meat and water that kind of just responds to forces kind of how it wants to um, So a lot of it is guesswork. so my advice and again it it's not a really here or there answer it's it's try it and see what happens. you know um, for some people increasing that hamstring and ankle flexibility will will help greatly for other people it won't um and and there is no one size fits all answer because there's no one size fits all anatomy right we're all structurally and functionally different so there isn't actually a a specific answer for that one I'm afraid sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's often the way when it comes to answering anything about people so that's perfectly acceptable and I think this is why it's so important to keep track of what you're doing Mm -hmm. and also to feedback to your coach because if your coach is telling you to do something but you're not telling them that it is actually making you feel worse mm-hmm. they'll keep telling you to do it right. and equally if they tell you to do something and you love it but you don't yeah. you don't tell them that it made you run faster they might stop telling you to do it so you exactly. have to have that like communication back and forth the whole time
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: what about like normal day to day life does someone actually need to be able to touch their toes or do the splits
1: Not unless they need to. Right. Um, For for the average person who, you know, if we take the typical office worker who gets up, um, drives to work or sits on the sits on the tube to work, then sits at a desk for eight hours and then does the same commute home and then sits on a couch for um, another couple of hours or maybe goes to the gym and and runs on the treadmill for a bit, lifts a few weights. They'll have all the range of motion they need because the body is very good at giving you what you ask for. So when you commute to work and sit at a desk, you're asking the body to make you very good at commuting to work and sitting at a desk, right? This is why we see these this adaptive shortening of the of the hip flexors, for example. You know people who tend to work at an an office desk for years on end have super tight hip flexors because they're always in that flexed position, right? Your, Your body's giving you exactly what you ask it for, and it will give you what you ask it for the most or with the most intensity. So if you if you work at an office for 40 or 50 hours a week and then spend the weekend, you know, watching TV or going to the pub and you go to the gym three or four times a week for an hour at a time, that is not enough to offset what you're asking your body to do most of the time, right? You need to interrupt your, or break the circuit basically at, you know, stretch at your desk, get up and move around every half an hour. Cause that way you're providing more information to the brain about exactly what it is you want to do. So, if somebody doesn't want to do the splits or doesn't want to bend over and touch the toes, then no, they don't have to. But if that adaptive shortening or the body giving you exactly what you ask for is causing compensations in certain areas, say, um, the average person decides they want to join a CrossFit gym and they want to get a, a great deadlift, but they lack so much, um, you know, lower body flexibility that they have to really round the lower back to be able to pick up the bar off the floor then yeah that's something you need to address um so again it, it depends on what the person wants to do um if you want to do the splits just because you want to do them then then yeah go ahead and do them but um if if you're happy with where you are with your you know with your flexibility as it is and you can do everything in life that you want to do without any pain without any tightness then no you don't the only caveat i would add to that is as you get older as you approach middle age age related um changes will start to occur which means uh, increased um stiffness and connective tissues uh, dehydrated joints all this kind of thing where being more active um more than just trying to offset you know bad habits you, you know actively engaging in, in pursuing fitness goals you know dedicated regimes of stretching will will be necessary if you don't want to end up with you know really really bad posture in old age and you know um potentially worse complications
0: with with aging i think it's Mm. always a really interesting one because we we assume that being old has to look a certain way Mm. because when we look around that's what old looks like Mm -hmm. but if you look to other cultures where movement is more ingrained in how they behave, mm-hmm. you see 80 year olds who are still able to squat all the way to depth. Whereas mm-hmm. in fact, most adults in the UK can't mm-hmm. do that whether they're 80 or they're 20. Yeah. And I, th- I think that we, because we accept that that's just how it is, we mm-hmm. abandon future freedom of movement unnecessarily. Which is a
1: shame. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good observation. And it's true as well. You know, ultimately, we all come from the same gene pool and we we all have the same gross structure. We have, you know, as long as there's no um, issues congenitally or developmentally, we all have two arms, two legs, the same number of vertebrae in the spine and so forth. And the geographical variations in flexibility and movement quality are essentially mostly cultural. Right. So people in Asia, for example, can can, like you say, squat to depth in old age because they they routinely squat from a young age and maintain that through the lifespan. Whereas in the UK, we're getting kids sat in chairs, um, restricting their their hip and knee flexibility from the age of three or four years old. Right. So we forget how to squat. Um, So because I, I go back to that point I made just before about how your body makes you very good at what you ask it to do when we're sat in a chair from the age of three or four years old, we're essentially telling our body, we don't need to squat anymore. So your body is going to save energy and take that away from us to make us very good at sitting in a chair. Right. Um, so that's why squatting comes incredibly, it's an incredibly difficult process to learn how to squat. Once you're an adult in places like the UK or the U S and you need a lot of intense inputs, uh, loaded, stretching, eccentrics, all these, strength based inputs over a long period of time we're not talking a few weeks we're talking months to a year plus to get that same flexibility that somebody in asia can can do at the drop of a hat right so it's but i think it's i think culturally it's changing as well i think we're obviously now more aware than ever of the health risks to being sedentary and to not moving and to limited range of motion and i think what 70 years old looked like 30 years ago is going to look a lot different in another 30 years from now, which is when I'll be hitting 70, right? So yeah, I think, I think it's changing, um, but there's a lot of work to do. And if people are in their twenties, thirties, forties, even fifties, start making the changes now. Don't wait until senescence, which is the, the age related decline in our biology starts to take hold. Cause once it takes hold, you can't reverse it. And it's incredibly difficult to, to offset the changes once it has set in so you know i think we need to be educating people from their teens and early 20s about longevity you know not just pursuing these you know uh weightlifting prs or your fastest 10k run start thinking about functioning like a normal human like a healthy human being and being able to do what you can do now in 50 60 70 years time right it's uh yeah it's a it's a really interesting point um and it's it's kind of like so our, our body obviously has evolved over thousands and millions of years to get to where we are today through through natural selection and evolutionary pressures. But it, we're at a stage now where society, uh, societal and cultural expectations are as great a pressure on us as was um, potential starvation and predation from from uh, you know big toothed and big clawed animals. Um, so we're, we're almost at I, I another benchmark in human evolution, but the pro- pressures are coming from society and culture. Um, And we need to start addressing those, right? And and we're each in charge of our own evolution at the end of the day. And it's, you know, do we want to evolve from a healthy 20, 30, 40 year old into a healthy 70, 80, 90 year old? Or do we want to essentially devolve into a, a, you know, stiff, achy, painful 70, 80, 90 year old? It's everybody's got the, uh, the powers in their hands, basically.
0: How much does a person have to realistically train their flexibility, and how frequently and how intensely to actually make a long-term impact that Mm -hmm. will help them as they get older?
1: Yeah, more in the beginning and less in the less towards the end. So, flexibility training is kind of like a bell curve, right? It's a big steep climb at the beginning, and then it'll kind of plateau off, and then the the amount that you need to maintain will be much much less than what you needed to develop it right so if you have say we'll say average flexibility you can't touch your toes you can't do the splits um and you wanted to touch your toes and be able to do the splits in all directions your static static passive stretching to so where you you stretch out and hold a position at end range you'd be doing that probably on a daily basis once a day is enough just a couple of sets um strength-based stretches so that's uh moving through a full range of motion with a load um isometrics as well which is where you stretch tense the muscles relax increase the stretch you do that three or four times a week Um, and you'd probably be able to touch your toes within about three or four months and do the splits easily within 12 months um once you're at that point you'd only have to do it once a week to maintain it so people get caught up in how much effort it takes in the beginning to become flexible but again you're you're over unless you, you again you're from a culture where You know, full range of motion was was advocated and and you've maintained healthy movement habits and you are going to have a much easier time. But if you've been sedentary for decades um, or, you, you know, you haven't moved, you haven't been to the gym, you haven't actively, you know, purposefully stretched for a long time. Then there's a lot of work to do to convince your brain that you have the right to display those positions because your brain is trying to protect you. Right. It's everything it does is to safeguard your your life, to 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 ensure your safety so that you can you know, pass on your genes to, to the next generation. That's essentially what it boils down to. So if you've spent years convincing it that you want to be able to be really good at sitting in a chair, then you've got a lot of work to do. And the, the sooner that you want to be able to display a type of flexibility, whether that's touching your toes or doing the splits, then the more work it's going to take. Um, bearing in mind, there is a ceiling before injury will occur, right? We can only tolerate so much loading. So that's why I say to people, don't expect to be able to do the splits in less than a year right? Because, and that's a year of intense effort, right? And that will that will satisfy, you know, that will get most people to the splits within that. Most people do it in about six to eight months if, they, if they're really dedicated. Um, you know, some people like to coast along and, and typically do it within about 18 months. But once you've got it, you keep it just by stretching once a week. That's, you know, so people have to just keep in mind that it's hard work at the beginning because you're trying to convince your brain to to let you assume these positions and convince it that it's safe but once once you've convinced the brain, then you know, once a week, just to remind the brain that you uh you can own these positions, basically. That's that's all you need.
0: Is it better to focus more on active or passive stretching, do you think?
1: Mm. Um both. I'd say both. Um and again, it depends on what a person wants to do. If a person wants to just do the splits, just because they want that range of motion for, for longevity, then do both passive and active stretching because. Passive stretching is the slowest and active stretching this things like isometrics is the fastest, but they work best when they're put together. So if you did a few sets of isometric stretches, followed them by passive stretches, you're going to get there much quicker than if you did both on their own. And this is where this kind of paradigm of mobility versus flexibility or active versus passive is really harmful because it's this either or mentality. When the research shows very strongly that when we combine them together, it doesn't have to be either or. If you combine them together, you get there much quicker. Right. So somebody say somebody wants to do the splits and they've got average flexibility. If they just do passive stretching to do the splits, they'll get there in about a year to 18 months. If you just do uh, like active stretches like isometrics, you will get there in about nine months. If you combine them together. Then you can get there in about six Right, so it just—I—I I don't know why why that why there's this either or mentality when it comes to you know to, to stretching. It's uh, and again, it it depends on what you want to do, and whether we're talking about flexibility. So should you focus more on the active flexibility, which is the ability to display that range of motion, or passive? Well, we need to focus on passive because that determines how much active we have. Active is always less than passive. Passive is like the reserve, right? So if you want to increase your ceiling of active flexibility, you have to increase your ceiling of passive, and you can do that with active stretching to a degree but the type of stretching best develops the type of flexibility it's named after so if you want to increase your passive flexibility you need to be doing passive stretches that will then raise your ceiling so then your active flexibility can can come up um so the answer is both (laughs) in short yeah
0: once a person has got to the splits where can they go from there if they want to keep getting better
1: um yeah there's there's lots of things they can do they can try and improve strength in the position or endurance so um a lot of people aim for more range so oversplits which is where you go beyond 180 degrees but you have to understand that that depends entirely upon hip and, hip anatomy and morphology right so the shape of the hips um men and women have vastly different hip structure right so that's typically why most of the people you'll see on in instagram doing oversplits are not men right I and mean, in fact a lot of a lot of men can't actually do 180 degree splits they can probably hit 175 or 170 that's that that's the average so you know we have to question whether somebody can actually get to 180 and it's not a problem if they can't they just get as far as they can um, and that's down to your anatomy and you, if you want to blame someone blame your parents because you inherited it from them but there's rather than aiming for more more range i'd say aim for more strength or endurance so so you can do a full 180 degree middle split. Can you do that while balancing between two phone books or two thick books off the floor? And then you can, you, you know, so that becomes then a suspended side, a suspended middle split. You can then try it between, you know, do the Van Damme split between two chairs. Um, once you can do that with your own body weight, can you do it while holding a weight? And then you can progressively increase the weight and that will just create such incredible joint stability. That you you're probably not even gonna to have to worry about any age-related declines in, in flexibility as you get older um, because there's so much um force going through the tissues and they become so structurally resilient um that you've essentially got that for life, really. Um so yeah, you know, can you hold that position for longer? Can you hold more weight in it? Are there other positions that you you can't because just because you can do the splits doesn't mean you can do everything else, right? So somebody who can do a full middle. And front split might not be able to do a full pigeon which is an indication of a lack of um hip external rotation so and they might have really tight glutes especially if they've been training the middle splits so you know start working on different positions right um there's 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 so many different positions to be working on and the more positions that we can access the more movement variability or more movement options that we have which is great for us in those oh crap moments when when something in life happens and we get pushed into a position that we're not used to. Because it's great training the splits and training how to kick people in the head, but you know, just because you can do the splits doesn't mean you can touch your toes. And if you say you you you've got a child or you're looking after a friend's child and he, and they've you know stepped forward in, out into the road and you need to bend forward and pick them up quickly because there's a car coming and you haven't trained that position, you're probably going to strain yourself picking them up. You won't realise it in the moment because of adrenaline, but afterwards you might be thinking, oh, my back and my hamstrings are really sore. I wonder what happened there, right? So once you've ticked one position off, find others, right? And just just try and assume as many positions as you can and make your body as adaptable as possible. That would be my advice.
0: What are some good, or what's your go-to thoracic mobility, flexibility? position
1: yeah pullovers so um you can do either on a swiss ball or on a bench you basically have a a weight overhead and you just go into thoracic extension and let the arms pull you down drop your hips at the same time and that's great for thoracic extension um for thoracic well for for full spinal flexion i love jefferson curls loaded jefferson curls um which a lot you know (laughs) you get people saying the bad but there's no evidence to suggest the bad it's all about progressive overload right so you start off with low loads at a slow speed and you build up the speed and load over time give your body time to adapt as you would with anything pullovers on a bench and uh, jefferson curls maybe some side bends in there as well and that kind of hits the the spine in in, in three dimensions
0: do you think people should be separating their flexibility and their strength sessions
1: no not at all i'm all for effective and efficient training it's the two e's it's what under it's what underpins all of my training and all of my clients training so effective means we do the things that work which you know strength training one of the quickest ways to get flexible is is by using strength-based interventions and make it efficient so if you can develop flexibility and strength at the same time through loaded movements crack on that's yeah absolutely i think again it's this 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 either or mentality that people have got. It's like, okay, I need to do strength on that day. And then I need to do stretching on that day. It's like, well, why don't you combine the two, right? Try and increase the range of motion with each set. So say you do a, a Romanian deadlift or a straight leg deadlift. Um, so you're trying to increase that toe touch flexibility with a straight back. Then try and let the bar go a little bit further each set and, you know, record that and then record your progress over time. You could even do some, some standing toe touches in between each set because doing static stretching in between weightlifting sets has been shown to augment or enhance hypertrophy. So muscle growth and strength gains, right? So you, while you're resting, you know, rest, you know, do, do something while you're resting, don't just sit on your phone looking on Instagram, you know, or, or chatting up your gym crush or whatever it is you want to do. Just, you know, do something purposeful. You know, you've got, you've got 30 seconds to 60 seconds between sets. That's, that's a great time for a stretch, you know? Um, so you can combine them in that way and then just do a couple of stretches at the end of at the end of the the workout as well a couple of minutes so yeah no I think they should be done at the same time absolutely
0: I think there's definitely loads of benefit as well in just how how much range you can get with your lifts when Mm -hmm. you are also stretching whichever bits need to stretch for you to get into that position Mm -hmm. I've noticed real improvements particularly in people when they're squatting Mm -hmm. in whether or not it takes them five sets to get to anywhere because they can't actually squat down yet. Mm -hmm. Or if they just squat a bit as they go, maybe they can warm up in two sets instead.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: So there's this idea that stretching before, like doing static stretches before lifting things
1: Mm -hmm.
0: is dangerous. What are your thoughts on this?
1: It's not. Uh, Simply, it's not. Um, again, I go back to that 5% figure I mentioned earlier. So this idea that static stretching prior to a workout is, is harmful to, to performance comes from these studies in the late nineties, early 2000s, which showed that people were stretching with quite a lot of intensity for quite a long period of time, like 60 seconds plus. And then you see decreases in performance of say, you know, between two and 7.5%, but the average is about 5%, which again, isn't a massive isn't a massive amount and the idea was that um because we were inhibiting um the sensory capacities of of the nerves in the area that we wouldn't have as much proprioception or as much a coordination and balance as we needed and the technique would potentially become unsafe again it's not something that's been well supported um in subsequent research and you know the most recent research uh, so that's systematic reviews where they 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 collect all of the data and they look at it and they do what's called a meta-analysis where they they find themes and come up with guidelines um so you know it's the highest level of evidence that we can have It's shown that if you do static stretching in a warm-up um or before before an activity and you limit it to 60 seconds uh per muscle group and you keep it at quite a low intensity because the reduction in performance is relative to the to the intensity so the more intense the stretch the, the greater the reduction in, in performance but if you think of it at a scale of one to ten and you keep it at about a three or four you're generally going to be fine and if you follow it with dynamic stretching then there's no harm whatsoever there's just no harm been evidenced right and then performance actually improved because there are some people who because of where they're currently at they have to stretch before they do dynamic movements or they're going to spend set after set after set of dynamic movements trying to warm themselves up and get the rhythm and get into that position whereas if they do a few static stretches first followed by dynamic stretches they can get into that position in the first set so i mean you'll get you get people especially on social media um, who will say you should never stretch before a workout because it's, it's you're going to explode um and the evidence just doesn't support that and the you know observational experience doesn't support that either Right, I mean, I've taught people for over twenty years, and I always say, be mind, you know, be careful of of people saying, "In my opinion" or "In my experience," because that's what we call eminence based um, evidence rather than scientific. But I'll I'll give my experience anyway. Um, I've taught people how to do to do static stretching followed by dynamic stretching in a workout, in in a warm up. Sorry, at the start of a workout, because I found that that was what worked for a lot of people, especially adults coming into martial arts who want to kick people in the head. Um, but they can't even touch the toes, so you know we do a few static, few, a few light static stretches to increase the range, and then do dynamic stretching to gently load that range. Number one, it prepares them for the activity. It, it eliminates any temporarily eliminates any restrictions that they have that are blocking their way to to, to having that range, um, and it helps you know set a good foundation for accessing that range long term. So they essentially they can get to that flexibility a lot quicker in their long-term training. So they eventually you would eliminate static stretching from the, from the warm-up, Right. So I use it for people who need to do it, but the, the, the goal would be that after over time, as they build up what you call cold flexibility, so you can access that range. As soon as you wake up in the morning and jump out of bed, you'd then take the static stretches out because again, being efficient, you don't need them anymore. Right. So you just do the dynamic stretches just to excite the nervous system, just to help raise the blood, uh, the, the the heart rate, and all those other benefits that come from warming up. Um, but are you gonna get injured if you do static stretching before before a workout? No but it's like, again, it depends if you're stretching to your absolute maximum and you're straining to get there. And it's an eight out of 10 in terms of discomfort, then probably, (laughs) but that's like anything, you know, it's like, you know, somebody saying, you know, uh, you know, I ran three miles yesterday. If I run 17 miles today, will I get injured? Well, probably because the intensity is way off the chart, right? So you have to, you have to balance it with your current capacities and, and what's about to follow. If somebody wants to do static stretching prior to a contortion class, where they need a lot of flexibility in that contortion class, then more intense stretching is, is going to be okay immediately prior to it. Cause that's what you're going to be doing in the activity. If you're doing lots of explosive movements like uh, clean and jerks, powerlifting movements, that kind of thing, then you want to keep the intensity of the static stretches quite low. Um, but again, we, you know, we go back to uh, some of the, the most prominent weightlifters and powerlifters in history were stretching before and during their workouts. Right. So so this idea that it, it, you're going to get injured if you stretch before you work out, it's it's nonsense, in my opinion. But again, take my opinion with a grain of salt.
0: <laughs> um, excellent. Thanks very much. No Can we talk a bit about the research into static passive stretching and vascular function?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of really interesting research that's come out in the last few years, um, and it's mostly from Japan. And it's shown that chronic static stretching, so that's stretching over weeks and months, improves the function of um, local vascular tissues. Um, and that's so that when we say local, that means where in the body the stretching took place. So if you stretch the calves, it would be the the, the the vascular tissues within the calf muscle. And principally, it reduces arterial stiffness or the stiffness of the arteries. They become more compliant. And what that has shown almost universally um, is subsequent reductions in blood pressure which means that stretching has great potential for for people who are not very active but who need to reduce blood pressure so you know a head-to-toe static stretching routine can probably the, be the thing that somebody needs to to lower their blood pressure um and the 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 kind of reasoning behind that is that when we stretch you don't just stretch muscles right the, the body is one unit, right? And all these ideas of systems like you've got the musculoskeletal system, lymphatic nervous system They they are artificial definitions that help our understanding of, of what we are, but we're essentially one thing. So when we stretch and we apply a tensile load or a stretching force to tissues, it affects every tissue, the skin, the muscles, the nerves, the the vascular, the, 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 the um, blood vessels, the bones, even, right bones are not these rigid rods they're they're actually they, they have some give to them they, you know they have some like flexibility to them as well so when you stretch you actually stretch bones to a very small degree as well um and that's why vascular tissues will be affected everything is affected right but we we focus so much on the muscles right because that's the thing we've been interested in um from an anatomical perspective for so long um but yeah it's, uh, so yeah static stretching has actually got great potential for blood pressure
0: That's really cool. And also, can we talk about bones for a second? What?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So bones are principally made from collagen, right? Um, And they have mineral deposits which give them their rigidity, but they also have elastin fibres, which when... So bones are not... Bones are hollow, but they're not completely rigid. They have some give to them. And they have to be, right? Because if they were completely rigid, when we do powerful movements, they would just snap. So they need a bit of um compliance and elasticity in them um they, I'm, not, I'm not saying bones are like a like a rubber okay uh, <laughs> we're talking like a few a very few millimeters of give but they have enough give that um you know they can absorb forces basically it just helps with absorbing and dissipating forces that act upon them
0: um, that um, just totally blew my mind yeah
1: yeah it's uh yeah. It, it's crazy yeah there's so much like it's so hard to stay on top of the research at the minute because there's so many you know so much advancements taken place um yeah this i mean this the thing that came out a few years ago but it's really only coming to the fore, to the fore is about ligaments that we think of them as these kind of passive structures that really only take up tension at end range but research by a guy called Yap van der Waal, uh, has he calls them dynamaments um because he says they're more of a dynamic structure and that they take up tension through the whole range of motion um you know, and this you know, we talk about muscular force transmission as well. We think of a muscle when it contracts, the the tension is applied to the bone via the tendons, but tension also goes outwards through the sides as well and affects other muscles and other tendons. And it's you know, that's why tension in one part of the body can affect another part of the body. It's uh it's uh yeah, phenomenal research coming out, really exciting times. I love the cat.
0: <laughs> this is more fierce.
1: Oh, lovely. I love the name as well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm a fan kind of Greek mythology.
1: Oh, very good. Yeah, I was going to say, was it was it a mythology or a Matrix? uh Not to the Matrix.
0: Yeah, no mythology. Mythology. God of Darkness. Oh, he's yeah, trying to get involved now. <laughs> so where do you think yoga falls into this chronic stretching process? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So yoga is a funny one because most people, especially in the West tend to focus just on the flexibility aspects. There's so much more to you. I think saying that flexibility, sorry, saying that yoga is a flexibility practice is doing a huge disservice to yoga because there's so many benefits to it. Um, and the benefits you get from yoga depend on the type of yoga that you do. If we're talking about static passive stretching, like yin yoga, where you, stretch into position and hold the position for several minutes at a time it is a is the definition of a stretching class but when you have like vinyasa flows that's more of a a strength-based dynamic workout right um so it, it depends on, on on what kind of yoga we're talking about but um yeah again you know yoga it challenges your your ability to move into positions and if you maintain the practice with enough regularity then you will start to see improvements in, in flexibility, but you'll see improvements in those yoga postures. But the problem with yoga is that a lot of the times it's templated. So like Bikram yoga, for example, or hot yoga. um, I think there's 26 techniques and 26 movements, which are great if people want to improve flexibility in those movements, but because flexibility adapts specifically to what we're trying to do. If somebody wants to do a middle split, they're not going to get that from yoga, right? They have to train for the middle split so you have to weigh up what happens in the yoga practice with what it is you're trying to do but there's also the you know the psychological aspect to it as well because yoga very much is a mindfulness practice and you know our, our psychology and emotions affect flexibility as well so people may see the flexibility improve because of the as much from the mindfulness aspect of yoga as much as from the actual stretching um you know because anxiety can increase muscle tonus and all that kind of thing, which limits, limits flexibility. Um but
0: I, in mindfulness and flexibility.
1: Mm.
0: Can you talk a bit about that? What, how did that work?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, so there's, there's been a few studies, but there's a very prominent one um, which compared um, two sessions of 20 minutes of anti-anxiety techniques and that increased range of motion better than static passive stretching or no stretching, right? And the idea behind it is that latent anxiety, even if it isn't apparent to us, can lead to learned emotional responses that affect our motor responses or how our emotions affect our our body, right? Um, And anti-anxiety techniques get rid of or at least reduce those emotional responses, which leads to greater muscle relaxation and, and lowered muscle tone. The idea is that when we're mindful about what we're doing, we go into more of what we call a parasympathetic response. So our nervous system is essentially divided into into two parts, we have the nervous system that we typically think of, you know, sense, you know, sense stuff, and we, we move stuff with our hands and so forth. And there's the, the autonomic nervous system, which is the one that we don't control. Um, and that's divided into two parts itself, the um, sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, people will know them as fight and flight and rest and digest. When you are about to give a public speech, or you're about to go into your boss's office, um, because you've, you know, you've been spending more time looking on YouTube rather than, than following those reports, you get that knot in your stomach, you start to sweat, your heartbeat, you can feel your heartbeat in your head. That's a sympathetic nervous system response. And what will happen is it will increase muscle tone, ready for to fight or flight, ready to act. On the other hand, the parasympathetic response what we call rest and digest is what happens when we rest and we're digesting food right we're calm our heart rate slows our blood pressure lowers um we're more at peace and we get that by by focusing on on being in the moment um by controlling our breathing uh, just closing our eyes so there's not that visual stimulus from the external world um putting on noise cancelling headphones You're just limiting the more stimulus that we have the more stimulated we become so when we when we control our breathing when we block out you know visual cues or we we listen to whale music or whatever it is people want to listen to um i like listening to the ocean like waves crashing on a beach that for me was is, is what lowers my my heart rate the most um that get helps get rid of anxiety and that will reduce muscle tone it puts us into more of a parasympathetic state um and yeah that's and that's one of the reasons why people will see an increase with yoga as well um so when but when you combine again it's like i said before it shouldn't be either or but when you combine mindfulness with stretching you increase the effect of both right because stretching has been shown like we said to lower blood pressure so when you combine stretching so we're talking static passive stretching here, not, not the active types, which will increase blood pressure. But when we do gentle static passive stretching, which has been shown to reduce localized, uh, sorry, it's been shown to affect localized arterial tissues, which reduces blood pressure. We combine that with controlled breathing, closing your eyes, just being present in the moment, you know, just being, even just being grateful of stuff, right? Not, not thinking about what politician is saying, what, or how many lockdowns are about to go into, or, you know. It, it just calms everything down and when when the nervous system is calm it doesn't try to protect you as much so it lets go and therefore you get access more range i i did a post on instagram um about a week or two ago and i said like the nervous system is like an overprotective parent so the more things that you do to kind of aggravate or worry the nervous system or the parent the more it's going to ground you and limit how much you can move and so by we can convince the the overprotective parent or the nervous system that we can access or that we have the right to access these ranges of motion, either by calming it down, by giving it reassurance or by getting stronger. Ideally, a strategy would involve both, right? We do strength training sessions and we do mindfulness sessions. Um, yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell, basically.
0: It's very cool. Do you think that the increase in flexibility that you get from mindfulness would only last for as long as you're feeling relaxed, or do you think that it is something that, if you did often enough, would become more permanent?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely. The more you do something, the more it's going to stay. Um, studies which looked at um, mindfulness techniques on flexibility have shown that increases in flexibility after six weeks, so six weeks after stopping the mindfulness practice and not doing anything, did decrease, but they were still greater than before the mindfulness intervention. Um so if you keep it up, it's something that will be maintained. Um, and really we should be setting time aside, you know, 20 minutes a day for mindfulness-based practice, especially the <laughs> after 2020. Here's hoping 2021's a better year. But if it's not, yeah, you better be setting aside an hour. But you know, 20 minutes a day, um it, it's been shown to be more than enough for what most people need in terms of mindfulness. And like I say, if you follow that up or do some stretching. In between it, then you're going to maintain what you've what you've earned, basically. But it's like anything. Uh, I go back to what I was saying before about you know the body will make us very good at what we ask it to do. If you do mindfulness practice and stretching, it will make you very good at at being more mindful, being being calmer, being flexible. As soon as you just stop doing that and you go back to a very anxious lifestyle and you stop stretching, the brain's going to go, oh, okay, that's what you want. Great, I'll, I'll make sure we we get really good at that um so yeah with anything you have to maintain it to keep it up but the the effects are not just limited to that session obviously if you just do one session and then don't do anything for six months you're not going to keep it but if you set aside 20 minutes even just two or three times a week you're going to maintain some of it
0: what would 20 minutes of daily mindfulness practice look like
1: it depends on what you want to do um there's so many options out there there's really not an excuse to to avoid it right (laughs) So for me, just the way I am, I hate the word meditation, right? So um, I, I call it um, focused breathing. So um, I've done a lot of work with a guy called Charlie Morley who he's a, he's a former Buddhist monk. He's now a public speaker and he, he's, he specializes in lucid dreaming. Um, but he, he does a lot of work with um, veterans because I'm an army veteran myself. Um, and he introduced me to a technique called coherent breathing which uh there's an app you can get and it's the sound of a bell and you breathe in tune with the bell or in time with the bell and uh, it's very long deep breaths and long exhalations as well and all I do is I just you know lie down close my eyes put my headphones on listen to that and literally within 2 minutes my heart rate has slowed by about 30 beats per minute um cuz when i wake up i you know i have quite quite high heart rate um so yeah it, it reduces that quite substantially but you can you know, you can just sit there with your eyes closed and, and picture a, a peaceful place. You could do very gentle flowing movements. You could do, um, journaling, you know, you could write, you just, there's a great thing, uh, a great strategy called morning pages, um, where you get a piece of paper and just free flow with a pen and you just write whatever's in your head and dump it on the page. And that just helps, you know, clear up your thoughts a little bit. But I, I, you know, I have to say, I'm not a mindfulness expert. I don't claim to be an, an expert or an authority on this. So I I say, reach out to to mindfulness experts because they will have a hundred more strategies than what I've just mentioned. There'll be so much nuance to these strategies that I, I haven't covered here. So, you know, I, I say, you know, I stay in my lane. I'm a flexibility guy who incorporates a bit of mindfulness. But if you're interested, go and speak to a mindfulness person. You know, even even just going for, you know, a brew and a chat with someone, can be a mindfulness practice as long as you are engaged in the moment and or even just you know, even just washing the dishes you know just focus on washing washing that one dish and, and you know smelling the scent and you know hearing the sound and all these kind of things i don't like washing the dishes so that's not my that's not my favorite but um yeah there's so many options available but i think the, the key components are you're in the moment you're present and you're not focused on what's going on out there, and you're trying to limit the stimulus that's coming in through your eyes and your ears, um in my opinion. But, I, like you say, I'm no expert on mindfulness, so we'll take that with a pinch of salt.
0: I just think it's so interesting our ability to be in the moment, and mm. the more we practice living mindfully and intentionally, how the knock on effect of that, not only on the life we live, but also how our body responds and mm. the the impact to our movement and our health. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, physiologically, it's because the the part of the brain, the limbic system, which controls our emotions also has huge influence on motor output as well. So, you know, we'll not go into brain anatomy today because that's just, that's a minefield. But basically the part of the brain that controls your emotions um, also controls how flexible you can be or how fast you can move and if you are like i say if you're worked up then it, it's going to increase muscle tonus or the amount of muscle tone which will you know limit or restrict how far those tissues can extend or stretch um so you're going to have, have a heightened stretch reflex so naturally when you try to move your nervous system is going to rein you back in like that overprotected parent. um yeah so the more control you can have over your emotions then the the more of a benefit it's going to have to to your movement practice whatever your movement practice might be um there's even you know you can dive into it and look at things like attachment styles which is depending on how or depending on the parenting style that your the people who brought you up used then that can make you secure avoidant or anxious Um, And for that, you have to go and and see someone and do some, you know, deep inner child work. I'm using inner child as a metaphor for kind of emotional scarring. Um, But you see it all the time as a coach. You'll get a client who um, is a people pleaser and will be constantly asking for feedback and how am I doing? And that's somebody who's typically got an anxious attachment style. So suggesting that person go and see an attachment style um specialist attachment style specialist who will do things like cbt you know cognitive behavioral therapy talking therapies can do can do wonders for that person you know so even as as movement coaches we have to think outside of the movement box um because human beings don't just move they 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 move they think they feel uh, and all these different things that we need to consider uh, but yeah it's um it, like I say, it's a minefield, but it's such a fascinating minefield that it's one that you want to go dancing through. You know, it's, uh, yeah, uh, the, the emotional influence on flexibility and other aspects like strength as well. It's like, you'll see people who are breaking world records for squats and, and bench press are psyching themselves up, right? They're getting into that kind of like aggressive mentality because they're going to attack the bar. That's, you know, they're harnessing the emotion of anger to really tackle that physical task that they're about to trying to accomplish yeah so it's uh it's really interesting really interesting field is it's a rabbit hole we could spend hours going down
0: <laughs> yeah that's very cool okay so last question that's not related to the other questions I was going to ask you but we've been talking for too long already okay <laughs> is so is there science behind someone like roaring and hitting themselves before they lift heavy things to succeeding more
1: um not off the top of my head but I mean you know it depends on the person. Like if we if we use martial arts as an example. So I was quite a, a successful competitive martial artist. I won world titles in Taekwondo and karate. I always use the the, the the pre-competition period to just sit down and observe my opponents because I get an idea of how they move because a lot of people, you know, they, they like to show off during the warm-up period. They'll do all these splits and kicks and they'll practice the kicks and, you know, for them, they're, they're psyching themselves up. Whereas for me, I'm sat there observing them and trying to get in cute, you know, clues about what they're actually going to do when I face them on the mats. Um, so their approach in mine was completely different. Um, th- those people were, like you say, slapping themselves on the arms and the face and the legs to psych themselves up because maybe they were getting an, an, an adrenaline dump and they were trying to overcome that. Whereas, you know, my method was, was very passive. I, I would just sit there because I, I already possessed the cold flexibility that I needed so I could kick people in the head. Without having to stretch, so rather than give people clues on how I moved, I used it just to chill out. Because I, I, you know, I found sparring and fighting fun. Right, it, it was fun, and the minute it stopped being fun, I would stop. But these people, would, in my opinion, taking it a bit too seriously. Um, but you know, again, it, it depends on what a person needs to do to be ready for that task. Right, it's you know, if they need to slap themselves in the face, you know, mix an entire bottle of pre-workout with you know black coffee um and sniff ammonia salts while listening to to Norse death metal music then then that's what they need i mean when i'm lifting weights i listen to Celine Dion i'm not going to lie <laughs> right it's it it's about you know i'm kind of wishing i hadn't said that but um, <laughs> it, it, it it depends on what's best for that person it's a, it's an individualized response um because for me when i'm exercising or training or or sparring or whatever I like to have clarity of thought and I can't do that when I'm super psyched up. Right. So it depends on how a person responds to, to the stimulus. If the only way a person's going to be able to attack the the bar, so to speak, is to psych themselves up with all those different, you know, auditory and visual cues, then that's what they need for other people. They can just walk up to a bar, lift it and they're done. Right. It, again, it's an individual response. Um, So again, it's that get out answer. It depends. you know.
0: Super interesting thank you so much for no your time today at the end of the episode I like to ask people to share a fun fact with the listeners do you have a fun fact for me
1: I do yeah my uh, one of my very first karate instructors actually taught Elvis Presley um yeah a guy called Bill Wallace so outside of martial arts nobody knows who he is but like when you look at his um his CV or his resume, he. He taught Elvis Presley. He starred in movies with Chuck Norris and, and Jackie Chan. You know, he he was a commentator at the very first UFC. So within martial arts and kind of within action movies, he's a bit of a, a bit of a megastar. But, you know, if we, if I'm ever at a, like a social event and we kind of introduce and we do this thing, you know, to tell somebody a bit about yourself and I'm telling people about Bill Wallace. And they're like, who? Well, you you saw Elvis Presley, and they're like, "Oh wow, yeah, that's really cool." And I didn't know
0: that Elvis Presley did martial arts. That's also very
1: cool. Yeah, he did. There's actually a video of Elvis and Bill on YouTube. It's like from I think from about 1971 or something. Obviously, I don't know what year. I can't remember what year Elvis died, but it was before he died. (laughs) And they're in the karate dojo, and um. Bill's got his trophies just and won the world. Bill was the very first uh, middleweight kickboxing world champion in history. And Elvis is there along with Red West and a and a couple of other guys at the at the um uh Tennessee Karate Institute in Memphis. Um, and you know, they just practice some some moves. I think Elvis is just there giving a speech and just trying to kick people in the groin, it's it's quite a surreal video. And Bill's there doing his the stretching and his kicks and stuff when he's still had hair, but um you know, I, I did an interview with Bill actually on my on my YouTube channel uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, but he's he's a great guy, um, really really fun dude, um, happiest guy in the world. And he again he was he was the same. He um maybe this is where I got it from, but Bill would be very happy-go-lucky and smiling during his full-contact fights. You know, somebody would punch him in the face and he'd smile, and then he kicked them in the head and smile again. <laughs> um, and he, and he retired in 1980 um, because he got bored it just wasn't fun anymore you know people were taking it too seriously it was like oh i'm done i'm retiring but he was the same he wouldn't psych himself up before a before a training session he would just do it <laughs> you know um so i think that's a reflection on people's you know personal you know personalities maybe
0: super interesting thank you for sharing that yeah no, no problem If people would like to find you on the interwebs and learn more about Mm -hmm. flexibility research, where can they do so?
1: Um, I'm on Instagram. It's at flexibility.research. On YouTube, just search for my name. It's just Dan Van Zandt. And that's really the only places I'm on at the minute. I do have a website coming out soon, but it'll all be on Instagram. So that's the best place to find me.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope everyone enjoyed learning all of the flexibility flaps
1: yeah no problem my pleasure always fun
0: thank you so much for listening folks i hope you enjoyed the episode i know i learned a lot from dan so i'm sure you did too if you're interested in working on your flexibility please consider purchasing 30 day bender from my website it's a 30 day flexibility program focused on helping you move better and get deeper into a few key positions this includes your squat your front split your pancake. Just go to pennyvarveridus.com forward slash 30daybender to download your copy. It could be the perfect Christmas present. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Apparently that's super helpful. I haven't had enough reviews to know yet. And I'd also love it if you would share it with your friends. Help me reach my 2020 download target before the month is over. Until next time, folks.